Hello, welcome to Cinemaniac Jack. I'm your host, Jack. Today's guest co-hosts are John and Chris. Hi. Hello there. So basically, the gist of the show is that we talk about films that I love based on whatever the topic of the episode is. And in the first half of the show, I talk to my guest about whatever the topic is. So today's topic... Oh, well, actually, well, first off, I want to ask everybody, how was, how was your Christmas? Yay! It was good. It was, uh, it was you know, um, it was chilling. I mean, it was like... It was chilling? Nice chilling? You make it sound like a horror film. It was chilling. Oh, no, but... No, not chilling. More like chilling, like chilling at home. Like, oh, chilling at oh, home. Chilling. <laughs> when you said <laughs> chilling, okay. I'm, like, I'm like, did somebody not get like, murdered in your house or beaten? Not like that. Yeah. Definitely not that. But yeah, it was nice. Was, New Year's is nice. I got, I got, almost got drunk. It was nice. Oh, almost. I, you didn't, you didn't go the full Monty. No, but it was like two, uh, two uh, champagne uh, glasses and oh, two uh, naughty uh, boy. Bur- bourbon beer. Oh, bourbon flavored cool. beer. That's what it was. That's nice. But yeah, so it was fun times. Fun times. I'm sure it was even more wild. But you say he? No, was I it? had. Well, my Jack and Bethany couldn't come over for undisclosed reasons. So uh, my friend yeah. Emma came over, I ordered a pizza, I ordered buffalo wings and mozzarella sticks, and we drank sangria, and it was wonderful. It was, that it sounds was, like a New Year's right Eve there. was nice, but I, I wish my two friends, you know, just didn't <laughs> abandon me. Okay, so anyway, so today's topic is a film you love for its color scheme, and the movie I chose is 2001 A Space Odyssey. But first, John and Chris are going to tell us the films they love for their color schemes. Chris, do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. Um, there's there's so many um, there's so many films that I would personally pick, um, not just for color schemes, but like a lot of it has to do with say cinematography. But the, with cinematography, it come that comes with like camera angles, camera movements, and the way the scenes are lit. And of course, then you got the camera, the the color schemes of scenes and of sequences, and even the entire movie. Um, that really kind of like give it that like that look that like oh I know that look I know that like that reminds me of this movie or that movie just by like a certain color scheme, and I guess for I think the first one uh, I have to pick is the Grand Budapest Hotel. Oh, you uh, bastard! I was, was gonna that pick that movie. Well, you, you <laughs> I got the sucker. List. Oh, you that was a little foul. No, but yeah, uh, Grand Budapest Hotel. Um, That's cheating, picking Wes Anderson. There's a lot of there's a lot of like color schemes in that movie. I would say. I mean, oh, it's, it's a Wes Anderson movie, so it's very stylized and very precise. But of course, I think the dominant color in that movie is the pink color uh which um you know that's the hotel's like color scheme and that's like a lot of like a lot of the movies set is set in the hotel and it's this very like bright and like creamy sort of like rich color it's i guess like almost like a reminds me of like a painting like sometimes sometimes a movie has like these very painterly shots and and scenes and uh, set decorations it just looks like it's made up like say like a, a dollhouse or something it's just so bright and cheery yeah, I think what I, I think of what I like about that is the contrast, where like the the hotel and everything looks all bright and pink, but the characters in the hotel, or, or especially the guy who runs it, played by uh, Ralph Fiennes, he's uh, kind of a sad person. Uh, I mean, he's uh, I, I think he's a great character. It's just like he's kind of sad, kind of depressed, kind of like uh, yeah, he's banging like older women. You know, he gets money from it or whatever. As far as I remember from the plot, but yeah, he's uh, you know uh, I like the contrast with that, like the brightness, but then underneath that the surface of that brightness is like some there's more layers to it or more just more you know hidden feelings if you know what I mean. Yeah, cool. 
Uh, what was your first film, John? Well, it was going to be a Wes it's Anderson, but I won't mention Wes Anderson. The movie, I liked the movie, but I know you, you weren't as hot on it. Uh, Dunkirk, Christopher mm-hmm. Nolan. I just remember, in terms of color scheme, a lot of blues, a lot of grays. Obviously, it's a yeah. war film, so war films, war films tend to go for that, like, darker aesthetic, I would say. Desaturated, yeah. And all, like, yeah, de- that's a good, the, desaturated, not so bright. Mm-hmm. But I just remember being impressed by the color scheme on that film. I mean, yeah, particular. Dunkirk was more naturalistic, and I, you know, I like as as you know, Nolan he always goes for most of his movies. Here, like he goes to he tries to be as realistic as possible, and Dunkirk is no exception. And yeah, that the color scheme of that movie is very well done. I mean, especially as like if you want to achieve that realism, that the neutral, the neutral colors, everything is natural. But if there's nothing really bright in the movie necessarily, and it, it fits well with the with what he was going for. So it's like when I see a body of water, I want it to look blue. Yeah, you know, because that's what I imagine a body but, but of water. But is it really blue? You know? Yeah, that's the thing. It's more. It's murky. just the reflection of the sky. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I found it very realistic. It wasn't overtly bright, and I can tell that a lot of care came from like whose job is it to fix the color scheme. Well, I mean, that's like I think that's in post. The, usually, the guy, the color, color timer, the, uh, the color dude, whoever color, it was, color, did a good job colorist, on that movie. Colorist, that's what they yeah, call the it. Colorist did a very good job on that movie. I just remember being very impressed at the time when I saw the film. And I'm not a huge war movie person. Like, I would rather like masturbate and drink hot cocoa than watch a war movie. <laughs> Honestly, I use that expression for everything. But like war, like Saving Private Ryan, boring. You know, like I would rather honestly boring. Like, I am not impressed by war. I think it's a brutal, sluggish, slow affair. But Dunkirk, mm. there was something about that movie that resonated with me. And maybe it was the color scheme. You know, I think what it was is, like, uh, the urgency of the moment. That movie is set, like, takes place and the way it's edited down. I mean, it's not... they. Uh, Nolan puts it together like in a nonlinear fashion, like he does with a lot of his films. So like things are happening. One is happening a week before like the current um, time. Something's happening a day before and one's happening an hour and they all converge into that near the end. Uh, no spoilers, but uh, yeah, there's the, that movie has an urgency that I think most uh, war movies don't, that don't have. I mean, Saving Private Ryan, you know, I, I love that movie, but like, yeah, like, I mean, it's, it's. I think it's paced fairly well, uh, and but it's not like urgent, like say Dunkirk, because that's more immediate. Like, oh, we got to get off this, this, uh, this beach because we're gonna die. So like we were waiting for the the, the ships, the boats, whatever, and like there's urgency because like we have to get out of here or we're gonna die, like right now. Okay. What was your next film? Oh, uh, my next film. Uh, I'm gonna have to go with The Matrix, oh. because that that movie is famous for its. Um, green color scheme and the, most of that's like it takes place during uh the sequences where the main characters are in the matrix and if you've noticed um there's there's a different color scheme for both the real world and the matrix the real world is more natural um there's a little bit more like i guess more softness to it more like you know it looks like these people you know there there's no nothing like say like digital like manipulation or just things that make it like all so precise and clean here it's maybe a little dirt just a little bit more dirty in the in the real world and a little more like grays and blues and stuff like that and sort of more shadows but in the matrix when they're in the matrix program everybody's lit up kind of harshly there's a lot of contrast and the green color kind of seeps in there kind of give us this sort of weird Still gritty, but also at the same time, it makes you feel like something is off. Like the, the, like the way the green like sets in on around the edges, it's like, 
huh, this seems a little weird, you know, like, is this real? Is this not that kind of thing. But, um, I, like I've, I've owned the movie on Blu-ray and it's definitely like, there's a, you can see the difference between the real world and the matrix, very green or very uh, natural, but on the 4k, they actually sort of leveled it off. They bounced it a little bit more where the green wasn't as harsh. And it was, I guess, it had it just looked i guess it looked a little more instead of like looking a little more gaudy or just overly green they kind of balanced it so it's like a little more subtle and so i guess it kind of makes things a little less obvious i guess for the future viewers to when they watch the movie like oh well they won't like be totally distracted by how harsh the contrasts are between the real world and the matrix Cool. That was a very thorough explanation. <laughs> I feel like such a moron when I talk about my movies because Chris, well, Chris is so good at explaining them. On that note, I tried. Oh, you want to end next? it? Oh, what's no, my next, next film? Yeah. My next film is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, directed mm-hmm. by Quentin Tarantino. The one color that I remember is just orange. The whole movie yeah, feels very orange the to me. Thing, yeah. The movie orange. feels orange so the movie feeling. feels so bright to me. Yeah. And just the way that uh, Los Angeles at that time is depicted mm-hmm. and everything, I feel like he just chose really bright, vibrant colors. Like, it's not mm-hmm. dark. It's not gloomy at all. Maybe the gloomiest it gets is near Manson's Ranch, I would say. Yeah, that, like, but what, also, like, like at the end, at the house Yeah, at the night, house. Yeah. At the house at night, it gets, obviously, it's at night. Yeah. He's not going to, yeah. like, shine a light at Sharon Tate's house. No, but overall, I just remember I really enjoyed how bright the movie was. Yeah. yeah. Orange uh, usually is a very easy color to, I, mean, to, I guess, to... Uh, put in a film to make it like a uh, like pleasing to the eye or like they they most a lot of films tend to uh, gravitate towards this uh, this sort of trendy mix of orange and teal that that's a combination of color scheme they use not just for like the movies themselves but the posters that they they make for those movies like orange and teal usually is used for action films and it gives like a very high contrast like the coolness of the teal or the the, the the, like the vividness of the orange put them together it's like whoa and um yeah so orange uh i think another i'm not gonna it's not my choice but i just like to add to the orange part there's a lot of orange in the mummy the the first mummy like they're because they're in the desert and like the sun and just everybody's like orange <laughs> orange mm-hmm. it's funny it's almost it almost looks like brad pitt uh leo and margot uh, Robbie, it's like they almost went in a tanning bed because I just remember them looking very tan in the movie. Yeah, and, like Margot Robbie's hair is blonde, but it's really blonde in yeah. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, or at least I yeah, think it's, it's like an over exaggerated. It's an it's yeah. like an over exaggerated sort of aesthetic. Yeah, I mean, talk about like the sexiest actors ever in one movie. It's like oh my of god. Well, speaking of orange, there's even orange on the poster. Yeah, there's orange on the poster, obviously. I wasn't so much talking about the poster, more like... Yeah, I know, I'm just saying. Oranges, reds, yellows, stuff like that. Yeah, like orange, red, yellow... Not so much very like a gold kind of golden age Hollywood sort of vibe with like with this color scheme. I would say with that one, oranges and yellows, and well, Mm -hmm. Leo's jacket is brown. Yeah, orange, yellow, brown, orange, yellow, and of course, yeah. Once once upon a time in Hollywood, he makes it look like it's a good time. Yeah, until someone gets hurt and uh, they set on fire. Yep. Yeah. Uh, What was your next film, Chris? Oh, yeah. So let's see. well, speaking of deserts, um, I guess I'm going to have to go with Dune, like the recent the Dune film. Um, what, like the, the whole movie itself is a visual 
especially, I would say, a visual masterpiece. But like one thing that was striking to me was how uh, how th- how ancient things looked, even though it was like in the future. It's still like a science fiction film, and there's, there's a lot of like advanced technology. However, it also felt old fashioned. It felt like things were like old, and also the um, the desert itself on. Um, I'm forgetting the name of the planet, Arcanus or something like that. Mm-hmm. But it's the desert planet with all the dunes, obviously. And it doesn't have that orange, that striking orange color to it. It actually is kind of desaturated. It kind of is like a pale sort of bleach, a bleached out look to the, uh, the desert in the way thing, the way things are out in the open. And I think it, it definitely adds to that whole like, futuristic but at the same time it feels old-fashioned it feels like it's ancient antique and i think it it works for the story because uh, that that planet has been harvested for its spices for many years and a lot of wars and conflicts and so like the the resources of that planet are being drained out and so like the the desert itself looks like it's drained out of like life and so i thought like i guess the pale dunes kind of fits that whole you know like color scheme that whole like thing with the story where everything's being sucked out of this planet and you know they need somebody to help them overcome the their oppressors their the people that are taking their resources from their planet and so on yeah well it, it was kind of a gloomy looking film I would yeah say. it was but i think you know i think it matched the tone of the of the story and the overall like aesthetic very well so yeah definitely Mm-hmm. Uh, did you have a, another film, John? Yeah, I was gonna say the first Kill Bill. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I just remember like fun. like that movie feels so yellow to me. I mean, the poster, the, the iconic, yellow, so the iconic poster colors. is yellow. There, there are other colors, but for some reason, the yellow sticks out in like the bride's suit and, and, and the yeah. blood too. Oh, oh the red. that black and white scene where they everything goes black and white. Yeah, and you know the reason why they did that, right? In that scene, why? Well, yeah, it was the what do you call it the uh, the sequence in the wall flowers. What is it called? I don't know. Blue, the blue something, blue flowers, trees, something. Yeah, yeah, the the big action scene. Um, they they actually he switched it to black and white for when he was cutting down on all those guys like crazy because they didn't want the rate the movie to be rated NC seventeen. Oh yeah. Yeah, and uh, so he's like, okay, I'll make it black and white. And I thought it was like some sort of stylistic choice on his part where I was like, oh, this is going to look great. But no, it was like he wanted, like he had to kind of keep them from, you know, keep it R, not NC-17. So he went black and white. And so, you know, that whole movie is just a whole like, like gonzo stylistic, like action movie. Like, I love it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty great. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, ready to get into it? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. So today we're talking about 2001 A Space Odyssey. So 2001 A Space Odyssey is an epic science fiction film released on April 2nd, 1968. It was directed by Stanley Kubrick, who also co-wrote the screenplay with Arthur C. Clarke. It stars uh, Keir Dulay, Gary Lockwood, William Sylvester, and Daniel Richer. And uh, I didn't bother to write a synopsis this time because how the fuck do you write a synopsis for this film? I mean, I'm sure it's possible, but... Well, it's divided into three acts, Yeah, we'll say. Yeah. That's all you can kind of say, I mean. Yeah. Three acts. Um, it's a three-act picture. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I guess I'll, what I'll say 
We have to talk about that. Well, but first I just wanna I just wanna say one thing. That's the beginning. Okay. But okay, yeah, so I I chose this film uh as a film that I love for its color scheme. I mean I really that is I mean I think I talked about this too a little bit when we did our shining podcast is how I love like the colors and uh Kubrick's films. And uh this film is no exception, of course. Um I mean, it's funny because, like, for a film that's set in space, like, obviously, like, there's a lot of, like, you know, it's dark and it's, you know, there's a lot of black in it as well. But there are several scenes. Like, I just, I mean, obviously, like, the ending, of course, being the ultimate colorful, probably the most colorful colorful scene of all time. Yeah, really. Uh, a fireworks orgy. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would have said that, too. Um, But, yeah, no, but, like, like, I remember, like, another thing that I really loved watching it this time around was, like, um, like the, like, the red chairs with, like, the white Yes, I want to talk about that. Yes, those yeah. disgusting 60s <laughs> chairs. That's what you disgusting. notice is the, they're the disgusting 1960s chairs. What, what was so funny is, like, I'm a moron. Like, I, this was my second time re-watching, yeah, my second time watching it. Mm. And the first time, I kept wondering, why is it called 2001? Like, I was trying to think, figure out why. And then Jack told me it's because that's what they thought 2001 would be like. Exactly. And instead of that, we got, like, 9-11, instability all across the world. Nothing close to that no. coolness. No godchild or whatever you call it. Yeah. We didn't, though. We got conned, Well, they man. were, like... The they real, were, re, the real 2001 was... No, it was 2021. 2021 yeah, was, like... They, the they were, like, 20 years off, yeah, but they were still... Off. They were close. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, as, as far as we know, anyway. Um, yeah. It's just so disappointing, because the future looked <laughs> cool in that movie. I mean, I thought it looked cool. Yeah, we were conned with 2012, the end of the world, too. Yeah. <laughs> That's a whole other thing, so... Yeah, but I mean, this film, it's just, it's great visually. I mean, just any of the scenes that are, like, in space and, like, showing, like, the ships and stuff is just gorgeous. Uh, yeah, I mean, they what else all look like paintings. Every, like, still scene where the camera just stays there for a few seconds to kind of let the viewer soak it in. Yep, it that, looks that just like a painting. Man. I mean, it's classic Stanley. Yeah, that was one thing that we talked about was how like there was like definitely like they were they were all just like paintings back then because no, of course it's beautiful, there was no CGI. Though. No, but it, and you it know is what? Beautiful though. It's that's fucking incredible that they were able to make a movie like that, and there was no CGI. That's crazy. Yeah, you know, it's, it's so nuts. And I I remarked to Jack while we were watching it. It reminds me so much of Tatooine. Like the aesthetic reminds me so much. Like, oh, you, like you the... see where George Lucas and Co. developed the inspiration, of course, for Star Wars. Yeah, looking definitely. At this film. Obviously, the arguably there would not Obviously, there yeah. would not be a THX. Uh, what's the name of it? One seven seven. Well, yeah, it's THX. Yeah, one. Well, yeah, like one three three seven. There would not be that movie, and there would not be a Star Wars without yeah. two thousand one. Um, yeah. But like, I know that. Um, 2001 Space Odyssey didn't only it wasn't only like an inspiration for Lucas, but it was also inspiration for Spielberg, James Cameron, and a whole slew of directors. I did a I actually did a report. I did a special project on this in college where we we watched 2001 Space Odyssey, and I made this poster like just diagramming all the influences, all people, the famous filmmakers that were influenced by Stanley Kubrick, and specifically of 2001 Space Odyssey. 
I think uh, that movie was like, and was the one that made Spielberg want to um, really get into uh, filmmaking. Same with James Cameron, and of course, you know George Lucas got a lot of inspiration for that. If there, um, if two thousand one Space Odyssey didn't happen, we wouldn't have Star Wars, like you said. And so, yeah, um, yeah, two thousand one Space Odyssey. Uh, that's uh, like visually, yeah. Like Kubrick himself, he was a perfectionist. I mean, obviously, you probably know about the whole. Oh, he's a psycho. I mean, yeah, he yeah, was yeah. A psycho. You know, he made Eyes Wide Shut continue for like a year and a half of them filming. It was like the longest, like going through a door, film Tom shoot, was going through a door, yeah, that kind of thing. Poor Nicole Kidman. I just want to hug her. But also, not not so much Nicole Kidman, but also Shirley Duvall. He, well, yeah, he, of course, he tortured her famously. Oh man. That, it's sad how that happened, but yeah, I mean, he, even despite his methods, you know, good he, art was created. Art was created. Yeah, you gotta give him that. that but like, like two thousand one, yeah, the uh, visuals in that, um, they're they are iconic. They are they are masterful. And um, now, Chris, uh, it, it was the it was the project that Kubrick got to. I think uh, for the first time, really got to use his full one hundred percent artistic vision. Where like the studio was like like not holding him back. This is like his chance to break through with like one hundred percent his thing, his idea, his art, his vision. And um, in the long run, it paid off. Even if not, it's not it's not for everybody. Uh, obviously, like you know, people like to argue, like or people say like, oh, there's not really much of a plot to the movie. It's like kind of not a plot. Yeah. There no, is there plot. is a plot. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there is a plot. Mostly, it's a very strange. It's a plot. weird ass plot, but mostly in the second act, you're able to string together a plot. Yeah, but I think it's like you know the themes and like you know about like mankind and uh, you know technology and it, it, like it's literally starting with um, you know the apes or you know not the Indian the, 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 the dawn of man, you know, and like how you know aliens possibly possibly aliens. Or something influencing us, like into the modern age, and you gotta love that match cut with the uh, the bone into the spaceship. Yeah, that you was know, like, such an iconic. That shot. was great. Yeah. My uh-huh. question for you, Chris, because you're really smart and you'd be able to answer this. Not to interrupt. How did they film the tiger lunging on the ape? Mm, There's a scene I where the tiger lunges on the ape. Yeah, that's what I, I was. How did they do too. that? I mean, I'm sure I they mean, probably like. Put like a bone up so to get crazy. The maybe they had, um, maybe they had what they had was the guy, guy in the suit, right? Yeah, the guy in the and suit. Maybe he's a trainer, and he, they had oh. a tiger, and they did something with you know, screens or something. Yeah, I have no be idea. With tiger. I wish I knew about that, but yeah, I know that they did certain things like um, with the way that you know, like that moment where the person is like going from one compartment in the ship to another and it's like a cylinder um yeah. chamber yeah. and they're like kind of like going upside down oh, Jack i think said he wanted camera, to do that on the wall <laughs> yeah the camera yeah. was mounted in the in the the chamber and the, the chamber itself was turning i think but the person wasn't but uh, something yeah, like that so many, like, like, filmmaking right. secrets that i would love to just decipher on I how mean, they did certain um, scenes. Christopher Nolan did something similar with um, that fight scene in Inception with the camera, t- like, moving, the set moving, but the camera stayed still, or vice versa. Interesting. Very very similar techniques. But, uh, yeah, with, uh, again, Space Odyssey, you know, the way it goes from, you know, the dawn of man, and then, you know, the man has, like, you know, become super advanced, and, you know, it goes further than that, and then you got artificial intelligence, which, you know, you know, 
kind of like that part of the movie, I think is the most straightforward. And like, I think, you know, it kind of has, what's the word? Um, I guess it's a section of the movie where there was uh, that you could feel there's a plot. Yeah, that you know, the like, second act with yeah. the, with, with uh, AI. What's his face? Or the David, third chapter or whatever you want to call not it. Not David. Um, Hal. What's the AI's Hal. name? Hal. Hal. Yeah, Hal. And you know that whole thing about you know the cautionary tale about AI, and then you get you know the monolith flying, and then we get to the whole color. What do you call color that? What is what is what is he going to? That's called the Tesseract. It's the Stargate Gate. Stargate sequence. That's what they call it. Something like that. But you know, you know, like the the interpretation of that scene is where basically the aliens, you know, who are controlling, they are probably controlling the monolith. They bring, they take David, crazy scene sequence i think it's like 10 15 minutes long it felt long but it was like a just a weird experience of colors and bursts of like spectral highlights and so on it's like it was so weird i like watching it for the first time and i watched it i think i watched it on a big screen like uh, by myself and um in this this little thing i had place i had to for my to myself and it was like what the hell am i watching but in a good way and then it gets to the whole scene where, like, he's basically in this uh, aquarium, this little fishbowl where he's being observed by the aliens. And then they're basically, and, like, he's he's staying in this for through time, and he's becoming, like, an old man. Then he becomes, like, they turn him into a, uh, what do you call it, a godchild. And he apparently is, like, a, the next evolution of man and, and, and film, you know? It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, also people people have their different interpretations of twenty two thousand one, but I think that's kind of like the one that makes the most sense. The way like the evolution of man, technology, a cautionary tale about AI, and then it comes goes all the way to this like moment where man has finally transcended, and now this child, this god child, whatever you call it, is going to um, advance the human race into the uh, into all of eternity. Yeah, well, it's like the the film comes full circle at the end exactly yeah yeah it's despite not really having say a plot like the themes like kubrick really sticks to his themes hard and it, it and like it all comes full circle and you know despite you know not having a plot with like you know characters that you know you fall in love with or engaging like relationships dynamics um it just really it really like sells the visuals and it sells like the the stories the story itself the theme that kubrick was trying to visualize on the screen and like i consider it like one of the best films ever made if not the best film ever made is it my favorite film no but like like there's so many movies that i would watch over this this is not a movie i see like every single day or every single week or whatever but it's one that i might see every once in a while and be like just in awe of it it's uh the movie i'd say is on tv Hypnotic. Maybe the, maybe the rights are hard to get, but I noticed I've never, not once throughout my entire life, ever seen this movie shown on television. Mm. Yeah, because, I mean, it's not for, again, it's not for everybody. They're like, oh, show that on. No, <laughs> <laughs> no um, I'm trying to think what I was going to say. Um, yeah, the first act, uh, my one critique, I know it's hysterical me critiquing Stanley Kubrick. Um, my one critique is I did find the transition from the prehistoric to the modern a little jarring. I don't know. That was just more of a personal criticism. Well, you see, yeah. we'll mansplain to you right now why they go with that, <laughs> uh, that why they make that cut because the well because they're trying to show you that like 
the apes, uh, like, quote, discover, like, their first technology Oof. by tools. Yeah, right, mm-hmm. Chris. By uh, killing those animals. Yep. So then when you see the, you know, quote, tool of the ape go up in the air, then it cuts to years later yeah. of, like, the ultimate tool of, like, a spaceship of... Yeah. It, it no, I understand. I understand. Like, I understand the trajectory. I just thought it was a little jarring. Like the transition I was so but, sudden. But, I like, was you like, just thought it was a little jarring for you, for you, for you personally. Yeah, yeah, personally. In terms of it the like transition, kind of, I guess it took you out of the movie for a second, right? Not for a second. Yeah, for like a second, but then you quickly get adjusted to the second act. And the second act, I think, is the most commercial act of the movie. Clearly. I mean, the, the whole AI section is the most commercial act of the whole thing. Yeah, but I, I view say. the second act and the the AI as one long section. Even the Stargate scene sequence? The, you mean the color orgy? Yeah, yeah, color orgy. See, yeah. the way I view it is you have the first section, which is all the prehistoric shit. Then you mm-hmm. have the second section, which encompasses Hal being an asshole. And then you have <laughs> the third section is kind of the color orgy till the end. I view yeah. that as like the three distinct sections. Of everything. Well, the film has well, it's like four chapters, right? It's like the Dawn four of Man. chapters or three chapters. Yeah, 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 yeah. You got the I don't know. Look it up. Maybe I'm the wrong. The apes, then the scientist, then, then the Hal. mission with Hal, and then, and then his trip Stargate. into the yeah, like uh, for, you know, child, uh, Godchild. It probably says it in the. It does not say it on Wikipedia. No, like the synopsis. Like yeah. scroll down. Oh, it, it doesn't. Nope. Well, you could look it up, right? How many acts does technology? Google. Three act plot synopsis. Yeah. Three chapters. Yeah, I was right. It's three. Was three, it three chapters? Yes, three movie hmm. cards. Three distinct sections of the movie. Um, huh. what do we think the budget was? Um, the budget must have been astronomical for this. Film. I don't know about that. I mean, really? it, it maybe, but um, there was a lot of effects work at the time. A lot of like groundbreaking stuff. I don't know. I actually, I think I have the answer uh, right here in front of me, uh, but. Um, I'm just gonna guess, probably mm, fifty million dollars, maybe at the most. But um, let's see the, my, if my guess is correct. Well, fifty uh, million back then would be like a ton of money today. Look it up. Actually, John. no, it was it was twelve million. Twelve million, but oh. so the budget was. It says ten point five million was the budget back then. But to put that to put that in perspective, then with the movie two thousand one came out in two, uh, in nineteen sixty eight. And yeah. so it cost twelve million, and put that in, in comparison to say Star or Star Wars: A New Hope, Star Wars: A New Hope cost eleven million. Mm-hmm. Mm. So one so, wait one million dollars in nineteen sixty eight is worth so so in sixty eight it, it costs more at the time than say Star Wars did, and it is time. But I mean, due to inflation, I, I think I guess so. It'd be eighty million dollars was the budget for today, around eighty million dollars. Roughly, yeah. Yeah, which is almost like a middle tier budget. Those ugly ass red chairs must have taken up a majority of the budget. I think they're really cool. I don't know. <laughs> no, about you. I mean they're they're just so sixties yeah. though. Yeah. But did you you guys know how they created the whole Stargate like orgy scene or whatever you want to call it? I do not. I, definitely, I think they, like, they used op- a lot of opticals. They a lot of um, you know, like they actually used chemicals. Like then they put it like I guess like, up against a screen, like a screen or something. They were filming it and then they like mixed it together and did some color grading shit at the time that is so cool yeah Damn. no it's and so then, ahead of it, its time put footage and they like. just like inverted it or something yeah i mean the thing that i wanted to i mean this movie had a really interesting history because like stanley kubrick 
was writing it with Arthur C. Clarke. And then for some reason, they were, like, they started to kind of, uh, they started to have, like, artistic differences with, like, where they wanted to take the story. So people always wonder, like, well, was it a book first and then it was a film? But actually, the book was actually being made uh, simultaneously when the movie was being made. So, I'd act- well, I don't know if, like, the book came out the same year or after or before or whatever, but... Interesting. But yeah, so like they both they like they came up with the story at the same time. So then you know, but they started to disagree. So then Kubrick went off and made his movie, and then Arthur C. Clarke went off and wrote the book, which is I mean it's interesting because like if you, I mean I've never read the book, but like it it, it, it explains what the movie does not explain. Oh, like yeah. it goes into more detail. Does it about contradict things. the movie though? I, I don't know. Like see now we have to read the it's book. Not, I don't actually I think it's not. I don't think it's that different, actually. It's just the difference. It's there's like good. little differences here and there, but not a lot. Yeah, and of but course, know, like, like one of one of the things uh, I think that like us film guys, we appreciate movie lovers, uh, especially with Kubrick. Like 2001: Space Odyssey, that film is very much um, a visual, like example, like a master of visual storytelling. Like even though like some people might not get it and might be bored the hell. Like what? Like what the hell's going on? I don't give a shit about what's going on. Like on the screen. Like what are the monkeys? Then the spaceships. What? But um, it like Kubrick is really relying on the audience to really try to like make their own interpretation of like what's going on and what he's trying to say visually. Like and it, like he doesn't rely on say ex- exposition so much or you know things being explained to the audience. He doesn't hold our hands. He just lets us go and throws us into the color orgy like you know um you know I love like how I came up with the term color orgy and now <laughs> yeah. everybody's using it like an academic like discourse. Yeah. Why do I just picture some pretentious film scholar at some college being like, yes, as as Johnny said, the color orgy. Uh, I just love that. Color orgy. color orgy. I want that to go mainstream. Every time somebody discusses this film, they must always refer to that scene as the color orgy. Yes. Um, what was I was going to say something that. really important. I remember it was really important. Before we discuss the score, because I know we like to save the score for mm-hmm. later on. Oh, sure. That food looks so disgusting in that movie when they're eating, like, the food. Are you so talking she, about the scene where they're in the spaceship? And, yeah, where they're yeah. eating it on the tray. The sandwiches? And, yeah, no, not the sandwiches, where they have ev- everything in, like, the tray in the movie. Oh, oh, you mean, like, the liquid Yeah, stuff. like, the liquid yeah. food. I'm like, it's like, MREs or something, you know? Yeah, like, that's the one thing I guess I would miss about the future if the food was all, like, liquefied like that. Yeah. And everything. I mean, if you think about it, that kind of predicts certain things about, our, like, the way things turned out. Like, uh, more foods are being processed, and all that stuff you see in that movie is allegedly processed foods. So, yeah. in a way, you know, it's not well, too they, far off. They predicted FaceTime. They did. Yeah. Yes, yeah. they did. And, like, like touch screens, stuff that, like that. That is true. Yeah. I didn't think of that. They did predict FaceTime. But by 2001, we did not have We did not have that. But 20 FaceTime. years later, 20 we years did. later, we do now, yeah. you know, which is nice. Like I like FaceTime. Yeah. I mean, I have nothing against it. Um, can we discuss the score? Yeah, but before we do that, uh, I just I just want to say I just, are you bastard. We'll, we'll get to it. You we'll stupid to, bitch! You ugh. motherfucker! You actually spit in my oh, face. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Spittle. No, but I wanted to say like, but like this movie was like, I mean, I just like imagine this movie coming out in 1960. Oh, the critics must have had a field day with they, this. They did. But like, it was so ahead of its time. But like, apparently, so I I read something really funny. Um 
earlier where it says... Um, the New York critics hated it. They were very harsh. I read that, like, there was a lot of walkouts, like, in the... Yeah, 250 people the, walked out. At the premiere. And I think uh, one of the people was Rock Hudson yeah, or he's something. Like, what was that he's like, what the fuck? He's like, what the fuck is this shit? And he just, <laughs> he walked That's out. Funny. I mean... But yeah, I just find that really funny. No, but like, di- different strokes for different folks. But I it mean... was really popular with the younger crowd because they were going to see it high off their asses with LSD. <sighs> So I would love to yeah. watch this movie. I would love to watch this movie on drugs. You would never. You probably. You would probably never return from that trip watching no, this movie on no. drugs. All I got to do is take a pop. Well, now in New Jersey, now that it's legal, I'll just take a pop brownie, watch the color orgy, and lose my mind. That sounds like a <laughs> fun way to lose my brain. I'm telling you, man. Every third blink is slower. No. Oh, we got to talk about Hal being a bastard. Well, we did to- you want to talk about yeah. the score first? I think we should talk about story first, then score. Okay. No, you lead the way, whatever you want. Let's talk score? about score first. Okay, yeah. score. This oh. movie score no, rocks. It rocks. It rocks. That's okay, don't the don't freaking waltz much. is stuck in my head. Yeah, a lot. I think a lot of them. A lot of music in that movie is actually like no. They use a lot of music like classic tunes, so it's like not all original. But of course, the Dawn of Man thing that was that was totally the, the movie two thousand one. No, it's all it's all classical. It, oh, yeah, the entire it's sports classical. But the the dawn of the dawn of man piece is the original part for the film, isn't it? I think even that might be classical. I'm looking. I don't know. I gotta, gotta look into that. But yeah, I mean, my score. Um, like I do get like it, I think it's again one of the greatest movies ever made, if not the. Oh, at least it's like I think for me, in my I opinion, I think it is the most important film of our time. Like it, there's a lot of stuff that, like it was so groundbreaking and it's set the tone and like the the bar for so many filmmakers to afterwards to really leave their mark the way that Kubrick left his mark with this film uh and he's got so many he's got quite a few like movies on his hands that are like brilliantly made and everything but 2001 is the one to beat and it's also just it it inspired so many filmmakers like Spielberg and Lucas and it just it started a lot of things and a lot of like a lot of stuff we watch today, like specifically Star Wars. Though that's more of a you know more of a like adventure, fun kind of film. This is what I think like I'm thinking, man. It's like sci-fi, pure sci-fi visual uh, storytelling masterpiece. So for me, because of that, I do give it an A plus. I mean, the movie wouldn't be nearly as interesting if you did not have the classical soundtrack to accompany it. It fits so well. And and there's a reason why people associate the music with the movie, like yeah. like the da 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 papa, and then of course that's the main one, the um, Strauss as well as the, um, the waltz, the waltz, also by Strauss. No, actually, yeah. it's a different Strauss. <laughs> Johan and Richard. Richard did the it's main Johan. one, and Johan. There's plenty of classical music for this spaceships and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> But um, I like the be waltz amazing. better than the main theme. Yeah, but of course, I mean, also, uh, just like the, the 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 score with like the the voices going all over the place is so fucking trippy. Oh, oh with the Leggetti, the Leggetti piece, yeah, yeah. I was, I was, I thought you were saying score, of like you know, grading score. But you mean the music score, right? Yeah. Yes, we're talking about the music. <laughs> Are you crazy? I'm sorry. Yes. I'm sorry, guys. But but yes, yeah, the was, music. Okay, yeah, we're getting off topic. Like you know, it's kind of um, you know when I watch certain scenes of two thousand one, 
it's kind of soothing, you know, the visuals, how everything's synced up perfectly and, you know, the, the landing on the moon and everything. What would be the worst score to overlay over 2001? If you took out the classical music, which, what would be like the worst fit? Like Britney, uh, Britney Spears? Like, no, I <laughs> was thinking Scream no, Apple, like Apple, Apple bottom jeans or something. Oh, yeah, like boots with the fur. <laughs> Just on top of that. That's what I'm going to yeah. do now. I'm going to take out the audio of 2001. I'm sure people have done what that. Like Gangnam on Style. Opa Gangnam Style. Op, 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 op. That, oh, that would be worse. Yeah, Kubrick would be really rolling in his grave. But what's funny is he he went back to the classical route with uh, Clockwork Orange later on in mm. his discography. Not discography, his filmography. Yeah. He went later on, he chose to do the classical uh, route again with that, as well as... I could have sworn he used classical in some of his other movies as well. Um... The Shining, he did not use classical music. Yeah, I don't recall there being any classical. No music classical, in that. just synth-based. Uh, yeah, very, brilliant. very like you know, sort of, you know, like like their spirits like making these weird noises kind of thing. Yes. This like sort of disorienting, chilling like what the hell is that kind of that stuff? It's creeping me the hell out. Kind yeah, of the score accomplishes everything a good score should do. It yeah. never it, it never overshadows like, the film. It serves as like a perfect complement. Yeah, but just to um, just to add to like the, the shining bit though, like the music in that film kind of like really like builds it builds up and ramps up. And as soon as you know things, the shit starts hit the fan. The music's like blaring and it's like creepy as hell. And yeah, I think it's supposed to be like a way of signifying that the house itself. Oh, not the house. The uh, the hotel. The spirits in the hotel, the spirits are waking up, and they are hungry. I think that's kind of, like, what they were going for. Well, well, it is kind of, like, the music at the end of The Shining is, actually, now that I think about it, is kind of similar to the music at the end of 2001, because it's got, like, all yeah. these operatic voices yeah. like, going all over the place. Definitely and similar. Yeah. Speaking, uh, speaking of shit hitting the fan, I think we should talk about our evil MVP... Hal, you Hal. bastard, you sick, <laughs> yeah, of course, you sick fuck, Hal. He didn't want to die. No, I mean, he, I was so happy when the unnamed dude, I, I know the guy has a name, <laughs> but like, Kubrick doesn't really allow you to know his characters that well. He, he's kind of like, the character development, I feel like, is very poor amongst the astronauts, because, yeah. like, I could not tell you that guy's name. If you pointed a gun up to my head, I could not tell you the name of the characters. I know Hal's name, because Hal is such an evil Hal bastard. And, all, and that's why I'm scared of robots. This movie is kind of why I'm really, really scared. Because you know Elon Musk, you know Mark Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos. They're like, we need Hal's all across the United States now. And I do not want that shit in my life. I don't want a killer robot. I don't want an evil thinking robot. Doesn't it scare you? Yes, of course. All right. Yeah. yeah. Because you seem you don't seem that alarmed. No, I and am. I want you to be very alarmed. I am. You'll be alarmed when the time comes. No, I know. I if that's what they thought two thousand one's like, it does come. we're probably going to have our own Hal in our lifetime. I'd say when we're like ninety, yeah. our kids are our grandkids. I mean, are, we technically already have one now. Well, Siri is yeah. Siri like Hal? Kinda. I mean, kind of. like fifteen years ago, we didn't <laughs> we didn't yeah, have anything Siri. like that. I, I still get freaked out. I, you know, Alexa freaks me out. Siri freaks <laughs> me out. All modern technology freaks me out like yeah. that. I don't so, like. Side um, side note though, there was a, an article I saw uh, headline showing that apparently this like AI robot like reacting to somebody like reaching out to them, and the AI robot grabbed their arm. Wow! Like it, it was like the being defensive. It grabbed their arm. Yeah, I don't trust self-driving cars. I don't trust robots. There was a robot in the stop and shop in the supermarket 
So instead of like a worker cleaning, they had like the robot cleaning. And even really? that, I don't like that. It'll mm. be really creepy when we go to McDonald's and there'll be like a robot like taking your order instead of. Uh, yeah. yeah. But the the thing that's that's interesting is that like in the story, like they they want to uh, they want to shut Hal off because I'm not quite sure. Like he makes a mistake of some kind. Yeah, he makes a mistake calculating. And, but he claims that there has never been a Hal nine thousand that's or a howl or whatever that's made a mistake so there are there have been theories over the years that Hal actually like he made a mistake like on purpose oh for what reason i don't remember why but i think Hal just deep down is a murderous psycho but here's the thing can Hal actually be evil yeah exactly yes i do find but him he's evil. like a lifeless like AI, you think he's lifeless? Lifeless AIs don't because choose to his, willingly his whole, shut off the life whole, support. He's not human, of so but he to chose him, to make that moral decision of shutting off the life support of those astronauts who were in those coffins. But he's a computer that just thinks like this is the best way to continue on with the mission. He doesn't see yeah. them as like true. Like he doesn't have like a we're applying human motives to like, Hal's motives connection. It's just to him. It's all, it's all just like mission, mission, mission. So if you take yeah. so if you put it into that context, it's like, well, does he even really have, like, can you truly call him evil when well, he's just a machine? The American yeah, like, the American Film Institute so, named him their thirteenth best villain. Yeah, in you cinema. always yeah, I saw that. He's all usually considered a villain, but like, I mean, you look at how I mean, yeah, he's all about mission, mission, mission. But I think like also he feels like he's the mission. It's his mission. It's he like it's his job to do this for the human race or whatever. What do you whatever he was assigned. And as, you know, Dave is, like, getting past all the obstacles that Hal puts in his way, he starts to get a little desperate or he starts to, like, like kind of almost plead. I mean, not that, like, you know, like, he's, like, getting all, like, the robot's getting all emotional. He's like, Dave, please don't. Please don't do this, Dave, and whatever. And then he starts singing. Um, he says, like, do you want me to sing that Daisy song for you, Dave? Yeah, yeah, let me hear it, Hal. Daisy, and it's like you know he's singing a child song so all like when when Hal's backed into this corner so to speak like he starts like saying like starts to sing like children's songs and it's like i think that song that song itself was uh in in that in that commercial like the you know that commercial the daisy commercial with the nuclear um uh, back in the day like the threat of nuclear war or something and there was this girl with day that was like singing a daisy song pulling daisies Yes, I know which commercial you're talking about, actually. I do. It was, like, about, like, communism or, like, the nuclear war. And, like, I think it was the same song, too, where she was singing, Daisy, Daisy. And then the bomb Mm -hmm. comes and kills everybody. Um, I do have a question for you both. This is a question I thought of. Why do the powers that be not want to tell the astronauts the real reason for their mission to Jupiter? Mm -hmm. That's what I was trying to figure out, why they kept it so secretive, the discovery of the monolith. And everything. I guess I think um, they they want to keep it secret for for until like the time comes because they don't want uh, the astronauts to get all <clears throat> overwhelmed by the information like oh there there are aliens out there and they're trying to contact us they want they want the astronauts I think to be focused on the mission of like just take going from point A to point B and then we'll take care of the rest you've done your job and maybe we'll tell you this or that. But you know, eventually, like you know, he Dave find uh, finds the message where they were gonna like eventually see, and it's like, yeah, aliens, bro. Um, aliens. So uh, that's the mission. <laughs> that's the easiest. That's way like to sum the up drunk the history version, version of, of this, this movie. movie. Yeah. yeah. 
aliens, bro. Yeah. And then my one, well, you guys explained it a little bit better than I could, but like the last arc of the movie always confuses me when we're in this like neoclassical bedroom and you yeah, see yeah, him that, like get old. Fishbowl, no, you see it. him like get old and then you see him like young and then he becomes like the big baby at the end. <laughs> just and I just, no, but I just don't like, like I, I don't really understand that scene. I've never really kind of gotten it at all. So he's I like mean, reborn he as a baby. He basically lives out the rest of his life in that room. I, I think if I'm not, if I'm correct, yeah. he lives out the rest of his life in that room. And then when he dies, he evolves into that star child thing, which is the next so, evolution of mankind. That's what it's called. That star makes the child. most sense. Yeah. yeah, that interpretation makes the most sense because to me, you see him like look at himself though. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why that's that what confuses me. A little well, bit. maybe he's not literally looking at himself. Like, like I think he's like time is literally passing before his eyes, and um, where he's at, where he, wherever he's at in the universe, time uh, flows differently and moves differently. And you, like all this, like one minute he'll be standing here like as a middle aged man, and then the next he's an old man dying in a bed. And like it's, it feels like for us, it feels like it's only been a minute, but for him, it's been like maybe a third. Hundred years or so. So when we die, do you think we're gonna be reborn as these like star babies? Nah, we did. Like I don't want to be a fucking star baby. (laughs) I saw that like fat little baby in the sky, and I'm thinking, ew. Like I don't want to be like. We don't deserve that. We We weren't like. You weren't. You didn't do the the Mugatu thing at the end of Zoolander. He was like, my God, it's beautiful. No, it's not beautiful. It's gross. (laughs) Or he's like, what is this? That sounds like a band. Yeah, Star Baby. Listen to Star Baby and the number one hit song. That sounds like a stripper's name or something. <laughs> star Baby. Star Baby. That's a Star, star Baby. baby. No, oh, star man. Baby. Waiting in the sky. Yeah, gosh. Oh, well, if it weren't for this movie, we wouldn't have gotten Space Oddity. Oh, that yeah. You, I kept getting confused. I kept thinking of that song a lot. And that movie. was like, it was funny because that's how I knew, that's how I first heard of this movie, obviously, was because... Because I found out that that's how Bowie got the inspiration for Space Oddity. Oh, so he I, did? He was inspired by this movie. Yeah. Oh. And then, but yeah, so then like I watched it finally like when I was like 10 and it like, I was just like, what the fuck is this? You know? No. In those words. Yeah. Yeah, no. <laughs> but I, I'm kind of annoyed he didn't make the lyric of, what was it? Ground control to Major Stan or something. <laughs> instead of, no, it's like Al? Stanley Kubrick, oh, like yeah. like Stan instead of Tom. Yeah, but it's so funny because then uh, Bowie was inspired by another Kubrick film, Clockwork Orange, which yeah. he then used partially for. got inspired by Ziggy Stardust and the whole uh, what is that language that they use in the film? Is it Nadstat? Yeah, it later in Dollar Days, yeah. right? But, but no also, girl loves but me. He, Girl yeah, that, me. but he also uses it in Hang On To Yourself. Oh, yes. I No, not Hang On To Yourself. Wait, is it Hang On To Yourself? Uh, oh, no, uh, Suffragette City. Okay, yeah. the point of the matter is David Bowie was very cultured. Yeah. Is the point yes, of the matter. Yes, he was. Hmm. Um, yeah. And you, you guys you guys know about um, that there was a, like a, a sequel to 2001. It wasn't a Kubrick film, but it was yeah, a sequel. Well, there's other books, too, I think, written by Arthur C. Clarke. Yeah. I still gotta like sit down and read the book. 
because I'm I'm curious. Wait, you you guys aren't talking about 2002, the direct to movie? No, the direct <laughs> to VHS sequel. <laughs> you know, right, like right, how could right. you how could we forget that? <laughs> could you imagine that? produced by Disney? <laughs> yeah, Disney. Disney loves their like direct to VHS sequels. Well, that was like a thousands thing. That was very no, big. The they wanted Toy Story two they... to be a direct to movie sequel, like direct to VHS. Yeah. On a on a side note, though, you got you guys uh, obviously you've seen Rosemary's Baby, and you know like the the child is born, he's the you know antichrist and everything. Yes. And um, there's there's a sequel what you say to... about one of my favorite movies. Christopher. There's a sequel to Rosemary's Baby. Really? You know what? But... Yeah, and apparently it's it's supposed to be terrible, and like apparently the Antichrist grows up and he's a loser. Really? So is it it's just not, like it's the a omen? drama? It's not a comedy. Is the Omen a sequel to Rosemary's Baby? Nah, I mean that that what the, the I know the original Omen, nah, but that that one that one's good. But uh, yeah, there's a sequel to Rosemary's Baby, and apparently it sucks because it's like some corny drama about this guy who's like feels feels like he's a disappointment, and he's like you know. Well, you're, I don't you're know. Satan's son. How can you be, you be a disappointment? <laughs> I don't know. It's weird. Anyway, 2001. So what were we talking about? The, this came uh, out the same year. Rosemary's Baby is 68, oh, yeah, and this is 68. I did it. Oh, yes. good damn shit. Yeah. I need to get Mia Farrow to tweet me back. I Sometimes I'll tweet Mia Farrow, just be like, hey, girl. And she, like, <laughs> never tweets me back. I wonder why. It's very upsetting. <laughs> Maybe because she's, like, a 77-year-old woman, and I'm, like, a psycho. Maybe she likes color orgies color orgy should i tweet at her what are your thoughts on Kubrick and the <laughs> color orgy at the end of 2001 man they really overestimated oh what would happen in 2001 by like 20 years or like 15 we don't have i mean it takes yeah, place in space it doesn't take place on I mean, earth that yeah much. but like I'm, I'm just trying to think we don't have like the technology that they have i mean i mean i saw yeah. a lot of stuff that, that you we kind of have now we don't have like floating. We don't have like liquefied food. Mm. We still have tacky furniture. Give it time. We still have FaceTime. We have some stuff. We have space. That's cool. We have space. <laughs> Any yeah. parting notes? Oh, I. Well, I also just love it too how they kind of. Because whenever I, I think of this movie, I also think of the SpongeBob episode, where they kind of. Do a parody of it. What what is it called? It's like SB one two something, but it's really funny because it's so obviously like a parody of uh two thousand one a little bit. It's really we're like uh Squidward like goes into that uh uh I don't even know what it's like he's like nowhere and then he goes like alone. Oh yeah, alone. I know, I remember that one. Yeah, no, he's like all alone. Yeah. Oh, you know who we never mentioned? Who? That poor astronaut who just gets floating into space, and then he gets recovered, and then he gets, like, floating away again. Yeah. Yeah. That poor guy in the yellow suit. Poor guy. Damn it, Hal. Yeah, it's all Hal's fault. Yeah, because he was all about the mission. Like, no, uh, he saw saw them as threats because they were planning to, like, you know, maybe deactivate him. He's like, no, this goes against the mission. These guys have to go. That kind of thing. Yeah. They should have made the deactivation easier to accomplish, though. <laughs> yeah. You know, again, going back to, like, the color palette, though, there, again, there's some great shot, like, a, so many great shots, iconics, the scene, like, imagery in the film. The one that sticks with me the most is um, that shot of uh, Dave, the, the the surviving astronaut, 
with um, like he's looking straight at the camera. It's a close up, and he's in like his uh, astronaut suit, and he's in that that whole chamber where he just shut down Hal, and he's listening to the message about you know from uh, his superiors about oh this mission is about aliens or something, and he's looking at the camera. It's a close up shot, and he's he's engulfed in like a like a very intense red. And like all these different lights and shining like devices all around him, and it's just such a like crystal clear shot, and the, the color of it is so intense. Like that's a shot that I won't uh, that like I can not soon forget. And like it looks so beautiful, especially in 4K. The 4K on this movie is brilliant. So I have it in that in that format, and that's the only I think the only way to watch it, especially on the big screen. Yeah, I mean that's. That's just like a really iconic shot, and that has been. I think they have put that like a like on like as the on DVD the cover. cover. Yeah. yeah, it's on the 4K cover too. So now, one thing I do worry about, like I know they take the utmost care when they remaster film and work mm-hmm. on upgrading it and all that yeah. stuff. And Nolan, Nolan actually was in charge of re- remastering 2001 for 4K. Oh, he was oh, really. That's interesting. Oh wow. wow. Yeah. So you know he like gives a shit. Yes, he does. Give the, a shit. There was that woman who was like an art historian, not an yeah. art historian. She was an art restoration, like an amateur, mm-hmm. and yeah. she took like an, an a, a Renaissance work of like Jesus Christ, and she did a restoration on it, and yeah. it is horrible. Like <laughs> the original up until her version. This was the original uh-huh. <laughs> on the left, and this is her version uh, on the what? right. <laughs> she totally botched like the oh, restoration man. of this painting of Jesus Christ. I'd rather so, take a picture of, take a, like a portrait of Obi-Wan Kenobi from um, episode two rather than probably that. No. Um, Chris, can you see my screen? Yeah, I see that, yeah. This was the original fresco on the left, of, and then <laughs> this is the one on the right. She totally messed it up. So, like, don't let amateurs, could you imagine if, like, somebody went up to you, Chris, and they're like, Chris, you can remaster 2001. <laughs> oh, that's too much to, power. Yeah. yeah, I'll leave that up to Nolan. Yeah, I'll he leave knows, it up to the pros. Better than I do. Who know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And apparently, I think he did like, the restoration without any digital tinkering. Oh. So no digital. It was all like analog. Very nice. Well, he also... Well, I think that, that's, that's, that's the story, but I'm not sure how true that is or if I'm... Can like, you imagine he put some like George Lucas-esque CGI <laughs> in like the new version of 2001? Yeah. Well, he yeah. also doesn't... He only films, like, with actual film, right? He doesn't use digital. Yeah, he's a real... Right? Yeah. And he also finishes, I think, most of his movies in film, I, I think. Yeah, he's a real... He, he does the color... He finishes the film in, on film, but then he has to scan it for digital. Yeah. For, you know... Okay, stuff. well, uh, this has been Cinemaniac Jack. I'm your host, Jack. And I'm John. And I'm Chris. Uh, see you next time. Bye.